Unashamed, the recovery podcast. And hello, recovery family. Welcome to a new season and another episode of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast, where it is okay to not be okay. I'm your host, Josh, an addict celebrating recovery from a 20-year porn and sex addiction. And new this season is my good friend and co-host, Drew. Hey, Unashamed family. Uh, I'm Drew. I, uh, c- I celebrate in uh, recovery, and um, I deal with a, a 17-year life of addiction, uh, life struggles, uh, living a life of insanity as well. On today's episode, we once again bring you a true story of redemption and hope in overcoming addiction. At the center of what the Unashamed Recovery Podcast is all about is breaking the shame and the stigma of addiction and recovery one episode at a time. And we are breaking that barrier by having honest and real conversations with real people and real recovery, by being unashamed and telling our stories, shining our light of freedom for those still trapped in the darkness. These stories feature people who have faced a lifelong battle of addiction or hurts and habits and hangups, and they've hit rock bottom. They've overcame that hell of addiction, and they have found lasting sobriety whatever that may look like for them. These stories are raw and unfiltered, but most importantly, they are real to show others that we do recover and that there is hope and that there is life outside of addiction. Now, these stories may contain adult language and adult content and may be a trigger. To keep these stories as real and true in nature as we can, we don't edit or cut anything out. Uh, We honor those who are willing to share by telling their whole story, even the dark parts, the ugly parts of it. Uh, So viewer discretion is advised. Recovery fam, it is a proven fact that we heal once the shame is gone. And shame dies when we share our story in a safe place. And I hope that this podcast is a safe place for all. For those who are breaking their anonymity and breaking their shame by sharing and also a safe place for everyone listening. There is healing in sharing our secrets and our stories of addiction, our trials, our failures, and and all of our powerlessness, and even more healing in hearing how others have recovered. So, without further delay, let's meet today's guest. Recovery fam, we do have a guest today. Our guest uh, traveled a long way to be with us today. It's going to be Dana. And Dana, thank you for coming on the show and sitting here and talking to me and old Drew. Hello, Dana. That's Drew. That's me. If, if you didn't know already. I do. And so, Dana, for all of our listeners that, that probably do not know you, Give them just a little bit of uh, an insight, a background, uh, a small introduction of who Dana is so they can kind of relate to you today. Well, um, as I said, my name is Dana. Um, I am 39 years old, um, and I'm a single mother of three. Ooh, man. Um, 
I have a 19-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. Um, I didn't plan to be a single parent, but that's kind of how the, the cookie crumbled. Um, I work full-time, and I also am getting an active master's degree full-time. So a lot of people always ask, where do I find the time? And it's like that old saying, you make time for the things that are important to you. So, um, other than that, um, I'm here because um, I struggle with, um, well, it started out as a porn addiction um, early on and then kind of spiraled into a sex, sex addiction. So um, that's what I'm going to talk about today. So it's very interesting. Uh, our last episode, we dived into my story, which was that of a porn and sex addiction from uh, a man's point of view. And uh, when Dana reached out to the show, I thought it very, very crucial to have her come on and share her story because we don't talk about the porn and sex addiction from a woman's point of view. We don't talk about it hardly enough. And we forget that porn and sex addiction is an equal opportunity to destroy her. It, like all addiction, it does not discriminate. It's not just a man's battle. Uh, and so whenever Dana reached out to the show, I was like, we got to get her on to share her story. Because I know it's going to help so many other women out there. And so... Dana, as we move into your story, as we move into your testimony, you know, like all great stories, it's got a beginning. What does the beginning of Dana's story look like? What is what would chapter one be called for your for your story? The reason she's laughing because I stalked you last week. I remember uh, Drew had not uh, Drew gave Josh a hard time about this one, but you know after after thinking about it and coming up with a few ideas, um, I think that I finally settled on the word unloved. Right. Um, I wanted to say not enough, but really, you know, more just unloved. You know that unloved feeling. Um especially as a child that you're supposed to get that, you know, um, is actually a building block to everything in your life. Right, yeah. Right. So, um, that's, a, that's a good checker one. I like that. That's a good, uh, what do you call that, a hook? That's, that's a good one. So, <laughs> that song, the hook brings me back. Yeah. So, so take us into that. What, what did childhood look like? What was that like? Well, you know, on the outside, I'm sure that some thought that, you know, I had a normal childhood. Um, but on the inside, um, my family dynamic was a little different. My dad was an alcoholic, um, but a lot didn't know that because he always worked off. So, you know, we would see him three, three months at a time, sometimes six months at a time, sometimes once a year. It just kind of depended um, so then, of course, we had my mom at home full time. And, you know, I always say that I don't want people to think that God does not restore relationships. So when I talk about my mother in the early years, I want everybody to remember that we 
as a whole are not in the same place that we were from my childhood. I've, I've learned to, you know, let God restore that relationship. Um, but early on, she, she just, I mean, I'm sure she did what she felt like she could do, but, um, when I was five or six, um, my oldest sister got diagnosed with, um, cancer. So, um, of course, I was the middle child. So, you know, um, it was this ongoing, at the time they thought it was a joke, but it was this ongoing joke that I was the reason why my sister got sick all those years ago, because I came home with chicken pox and then she ended up in the hospital and it was this whole big mess. But when you, when you tell that to a six-year-old, you really don't realize it, it was almost the ball just kind of starting there, you know, like, because even at six years old, I harbored guilt from that, you know, feeling that I, I really did, you know, do really bad harm to, you know, my sister. Um, during that time of our life, um, because my, my mom or when my dad was at home, um, they would put us off on other family members, you know, um, and probably around the age of seven, um, was the first time that I was ever molested by a family member. Um, and of course, you know, people chop it up to, you know, they're experimenting, they're doing this, they're doing that. But, you know, really in actuality, when a child brings up this, it should really not be taken lightly. You know, people should, you know, and of course, in our family, we just kind of swept under the rug. Like, we don't have time to deal with it. You know, you're, you're as they always say, and I was the drama queen of the, of the kids because I was the middle child. I was always seeking attention. So it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. We've got other things to deal with. So then again, there is that moment in your life where you don't have anybody to talk to, even at seven, you know, yeah. What do you do? You just kind of you yeah. start learning how to internalize everything and, you know, put everything in. Well, you know, this goes on um, until probably I was, you know, um, nine, I would say. And then finally I got old enough where um, I, ha I was able to kind of voice our, my opinion and just stop going to that side of the family gatherings and things like that. So it took all of that, and I just, yeah, and, yeah, I was, I was trying to run that, and, 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 and still to this day, like, I, when family, like, if a family member dies, I mean, you know, I still have to be in the room with them, but I just, I have chalked it up to, I, I, just because I'm in the same room with them doesn't mean that I have to associate with them, right. and, you know, um, and I felt like if I didn't, then I would never be able to get out of the hole that I had just buried myself in. Right. Yeah. I would say, so moving on, um, mom, you know, I told y'all my dad worked off. Well, um, one night, um, when I was about 13, 14, um, my mom, uh, you know, kissed all of us goodnight and everything. We get up the next morning, my mom moved out wow. overnight. I would say um, my dad was in um, Ohio, another state. So, of course, 
you know, not only are we shocked that my mom moved out overnight, but, you know, here comes my grandmother, which is my dad's mom. She comes in and, you know, throughout her whole life, she always tried to make sure that we went to church. She was the church person in our, in our family. You know, she relied heavily on, you know, on the Lord. Um, neither one of my parents were real religious. Actually, believe it or not, I don't think I ever saw them in a church. Um, it could have just been the fact that my dad was Methodist and my mom was Catholic. Um, so they, they kind of, I know that, that that's crazy. You know, they even had to get permission to get married. So it was like a whole, like, it was like before I was even born that my religion needed to be decided for me. Like, it's, it's weird how that happens. But, um, so, you know, that happens. Of course, um, you know, we go three, almost four months without even hearing from my mom. Like, she just kind of, and, and no, she's not, you know, to answer any questions going through anybody's mind. No, she was not a, a drug abuser. She was not anything like that. I'm guessing that she just felt like she was overwhelmed and unhappy in her life. And, you know, that's what she felt like she needed to do. But the repercussions to that on the kids' end was, I became really rebellious. You know, she tried to come back after four months of being gone, and I just wasn't having it. Now, I mean, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to, you know. Um, at this time, I had a job and, you know, had a way of going. And, you know, it was what it was. I'm going to do what I want to do. Right, independent. You know, because I felt like if I didn't fend for myself, nobody else would. Because... Uh, it, you know, they say it's joking. Well, right. Again, that's one of those things that kind of sit in, and you've already been in like you're alone. Right. Because they're blaming you or joking about your sister getting cancer. Right. right. So that's, you know, it's almost a passive blame. You know? Right. But in your mindset at six, you know, that's kind of like, well, that ain't clear. That's what they're saying about women. I yeah. don't care. You know, to so do a lot of negative self talk. Right. So, you know, probably about the age of, you know, um, well, about the age of 16, um, I got my first job. I was so excited, everything else. And of course, you know, at this point in time, you know, you're 16, you're living life, you know, things are what they are. Well, you know, you look for things that you wanted out of your parents from everybody in your life, you know, so friends, I looked at friends differently, and I always had in my life more male friends than I ever had female friends, because I just felt like I related with them um, more than I did um, more than I did females. To me, females were just too emotional, and you know, <laughs> and so, <laughs> of course, then you get a label all on its own, you know, because I'm a female, and I'm 16, and I want to hang out with the guy. You know, um, but of course, um, that was actually the first time that I was ever actually um, sexually assaulted um, by a friend um, that I trusted. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I will say this, you know, whatever situation you put yourself in, it doesn't warrant when you say no, you know, that means no. So, um, you know, 
friend or no friend. So, you know, of course, my dad found out about that and, you know, and, and we did what we could. It was, you know, somebody that, you know, was not in town and he did end up going to jail. But, you know, there again at 16, you know, my, I don't know if my parents just didn't know how to help or, you know, whatever. It just kind of just, it was like a snowball effect. It's like, you know, I'm still here to fend for myself because nobody is doing really anything productive to help the situation. They're just like, why are you acting this way? Right. You know, so. Um, and, and so, to kind of put a little perspective here, we're talking 17, 18, 
which was, you know, um, and the only reason I was allowed to go was because my mamma, um, she felt like it was going to be a great experience because they're Catholic over there, and she was <laughs> Catholic, and, you know, so, right. So she felt like it was a great idea. And, you know, and to this day, you know, it was a great experience. Right. It was, a, you know, it was a great experience. But when I got back, um, that is when, I guess you could say, my adult life kind of, you know, started to change. You know, um, I had applied for junior college. So even though I'd been on my own for the longest time, you know, I was actually out of the house on my own, yeah. you know, and everything. Well, I met someone um right after I got back. Um and you know they always say that the Lord puts people in your life for either a blessing or a lesson. And I would have to say to this day, 20 years later, that this person in my life was a blessing and a lesson all at the same time. Um right. it wasn't one or the other, it was a little bit of both, but I wouldn't know that until later in life. Um but anyways, his name was Benji. Um, we started dating. Um, great guy all the way around, you know, worshiped at the ground I walked on. And for the first time in my life, I got, he, he just bombarded me with all these emotions that I didn't know anything about. So, of course, here I am over here, Miss Independent. Like, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. He just wanted to love me. Right. He just wanted to do something that was foreign to me yeah. at the time. So, um, because you've been so used to the exact opposite. Right, right. So I was pretty horrible to him, but every single time it never failed for the whole almost two years we dated. Um, no matter how horrible I was to him, he always showed me grace and mercy and always forgave me and he came back. Um, now, of course, that changed in um, the end of 2000. Um, we got into an argument. He wanted me to come home from school. It sounds simple enough at my age, but I told him no. That I would, if he wanted to see me, he could come to me. You know, we got into an argument, and I said some things that I probably shouldn't have said, and pretty much told him that I didn't want to speak to him anymore. Well, the next day, I felt bad, like always. Like, let's just feel bad. I, it was this process. It's like a toxic relationship, but I was the toxic one at this time, and he, he, you know, um, I called to apologize. He didn't answer the phone. Well, the next afternoon. For whatever reason, for college students to be watching the news, I'm not real sure, but um, <laughs> the news was on. And um, in that moment, my life stopped. Um, there was a news article where he had died. And he had the same name as his dad. So let me, let me backtrack two seconds. When I saw the news article, they didn't specify whether it was his dad or it was him because they had the same exact name. So, of course, as soon as I saw it, I picked up the phone and I called his house because back then we didn't really have cell phones like we do now. So I had to call his house phone. <laughs> um, and in that moment, my life legitly stopped. I feel like I was having an out-of-body experience because his dad was the one that answered the phone. 
So, um, of course, then, you know, I was already, you know, in my life guilted with all these other things. So now I have this this situation that I really just have at 18, 19 years old that I don't even know how to deal with, how to process. So everybody in my life is like, well, you've got to deal with it. You've got to hit it head on. Head on. I mean, I, I remember. That's the scariest thing to do because I had a girlfriend uh, hospital. Uh, and so the hardest part for me was to actually face it. You know, I ran from it. I, well, and that's what I'm, I'm, I would say, I, I went to the funeral and I remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. It's weird how you could remember things like that, but I remember it like it was yesterday. They made me go in there and they made me see him in that casket, just laying there. Like, I, I feel like I, like I said, it was like an out of body experience, like, you know, and then, of course, at this time, and a lot of people don't know this, but, um, you know, we're going to be transparent here. Um, my best friend at the time, of course, um, talked me into going out and drinking the night of the funeral. She felt like I needed to kind of clear my mind. Of course, we were 18, 19, so, you know, I was like, no, I didn't think so, but she kind of talked me into it, peer pressure. You know, so... Um, well, the next morning, I woke up beside someone that I didn't even know. She was supposed to be my, you know, ride or die that evening, and I don't know where she ended up at. And I'm not blaming her because, you know, things happen for a reason. But a month later, I find out that I'm pregnant with my first child. <laughs> so... It was just like one thing after another. Like you just could not breathe. You just could not. It's like you're in a pool of water suffocating and you just don't know how to. So you just put it all down and you you get used to, even at a young age, putting that face on and saying, I'm okay because that's what everybody expected me to be. So that was probably... You know, after I found out that I got pregnant, my parents made me marry the guy that got me pregnant. Didn't know anything about him, really. We were married less than a year. So, um, for listeners out there, you know, there are other options other than getting married when you get pregnant. Don't don't make it the situation worse. Um, we're great co-parents. Um, but that's probably where porn started for me. You know, it had, it had always kind of been in the back of my mind, but um, my next husband, he he liked it, you know, um, which is my other two kids' um, dad. And, you know, back then, in our day, you could go to the movie gallery and, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> right, and go to Matt Vernon, and, you know, they had the five for five or, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, next thing you know, you just have this whole collection and you just get lost. And, you, I mean, you just don't really think anything of it, you know. Um, and in the beginning, it was with my husband, so, you know, it was kind of, but then I found myself 
it was like I used it as a release for everything else. It was like he didn't have to even be around. And, you know, I was I was curious about it or I was reading about it or I needed to know more about it. Um, so um, through that marriage, um, you know, uh, that was probably as bad as I hate to say was probably the best thing that came out of the marriage because um, he had a drinking problem um, and we ended up separating in 2014 because um, he could not control his anger. Um, and so after we after we divorced, you know, I went and um, that was really. Here we are. Okay. 2014. That was really the first time that I had ever been alone since Benji died. I mean, because I just, you know, I just used it as an excuse. Like I had to have somebody in my life, but everybody that I kept picking from my life, I picked because I felt like I needed to be punished for the way that I treated him. So you were doing yourself a self-work through people. Yes. Yes, pretty much. Like I felt like I was physically that the Lord was mad at me and that I felt like no matter what I did, everything that, that happened to me, I deserved because the one person that he put in my life that actually showed me true love, I did. I did. I ruined it. I, you know, I sabotaged it. I self-sabotaged. So, I completely understand what you're going through. I grew up in a gospel. And so, I always had this image of God sitting on the corner of his seat with a lightning bolt ready to strike me down with a mistake. That was kind of the image that I had growing up. And so, uh, for those that don't know my story, uh, you can go back and listen to our last episode. You know, my porn addiction led to having affairs with my wife. And so, after all the dust settled, you know, my wife did not leave. She, she stayed. And we actually had our second daughter after that. And when she was born, uh, about two months after she was born, she just wouldn't eat. And wound up having a feeding tube at the end. And we were talking about doing surgery on it. And I carried enormous guilt. I thought that this was my punishment. And that this is what I got. Like, I thought the sins of. The sins of the father. Yes. yes. And I carried so much of that. I carried a lot of it. And so. I know what you're like. I, I understand, like, 100%. I get what you're saying. Like, when you're carrying that kind of gift, it eats at you. So, it, it started out as a small hole. It started out as a small hole. You know, and in through this now, you know, um, there were but God moments. You know, when I got pregnant with my daughter in my second marriage, um, Something happened in one of the sonograms when I was about six months pregnant, and we had to go see a specialist. And between six and seven months, um, the specialist tried to 
talked me into having an abortion because they thought that, you know, my daughter was going to have Downs and she had fluid on her kidneys and there was something wrong with her heart. And, you know, and I remember every night sitting in the bathtub, bawling my eyes out, praying that I would do anything if he would just get her here safely. Like, I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame, but don't. Don't take my sins out on my kids. And that, and that sounds crazy, but that was the prayer that I prayed to him. Not, will you do this because of this? But it was more of, just let me be the one that carries the burden, not my kids, not my kids. And, you know, and, and the crazy thing is, is she was born. The morning of, they still said the same thing. I go into labor. They take her away for like three or four hours. We don't know anything. I'm just, we're just, I mean, you know kids, so we're just sitting there waiting, waiting. Um, and the doctor comes in and he just looks and he says, I, I don't know how. He said, but you have a perfectly healthy daughter. You know, and in that moment, I was thankful to God, but I didn't understand because then I just felt like, okay, well, he listened and I, I need to be aware of what my punishment is going to be now. I, it, it's still on me. It's right. still on It's coming. Right. 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 So where is the next obstacle coming from? And, you know, and that's the way that I felt. <clears throat> um, so, of course, you know, like I said, me and that has been separated in 2014. Well, you know, for the first time ever, I was alone. So somebody, here again, I should, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to friends, but, you know, choose your friends wisely. I had a friend, I had a friend introduce me to uh, dating online because I worked so much and, you know, I got kids and, and, you know, who goes to the bar anymore? I don't, you know, I don't really know. But anyways, um, yeah, I would say, but what they didn't, but what they didn't realize is, is the place that I was at in my life opened a whole new doorway that I didn't even realize until I was right smack in the middle of it. And that was free reign on men. Like, it was like... And, and I hate to sound like this, but it was like going to the buffet and you're just able to, you know, pick and choose, you know. And I didn't have to worry about being enough because I knew that if I did one thing and I was in control, that for that moment, I would feel complete. It, 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 it's like gambling. You know, you go and you put the quarter in the slot and you hear all the quarters drop, so it's like it's a it's a complete high. But what they don't explain to you is is with that complete high that you get, you get that absolute low. If you you know, and then it, it just continues on like you're you find yourself um you know it started with one situation you know, and then you know throughout. Um, the situation, you know, it started off slow. You know, I tried dating. I tried to do the right thing in the beginning. Like, let's date and have a real, I didn't even know what a real relationship was, but let's, you know, let's try. And it was like, no matter what I did, they always wanted one thing. 
And if they didn't get it, then they were moving on. It was, you know, it's a perception that is is put out there. Like, especially when you get to a certain age in life. I, I didn't get the memo right. at the time. I didn't get the memo at the time. Well, because of online dating, you know, they don't tell you you're not supposed to put certain pictures on your profile. I thought it was like Facebook. You know, just, you know, you just put a selfie up and you don't think about it. Well, I had put um, some pictures on there with my working woman and ended up getting a stalker and didn't even realize it um, until October of 2017 when he decided to show up at my house. Um, that took a, a big turn. A big turn. Well, in that moment, um, I was actually sexually assaulted for the third time. Um, and carried a good bit of PTSD to begin with, um, in that situation. Um, you know, I just kept, unlike the, the first two, you know, I was at a point in my life where I just kept replaying the situation over and over again. Could I handle things differently? Could I have done something differently to get a different outcome? And of course, at this time, in my thinking process, of course, now I know it was not correct, but in my mind, the only thing that I could come up with conclusion-wise is, is, well, stop telling them no. Stop telling them no. It's right. It, it, because it, it was like it was not working anyway. So, and it wasn't like I didn't enjoy it when I did. Or, you know, or was it, it wasn't always on my mind. I mean, I would even talk about it at work. I was, you know, like the girls at work, I was always known as um, the Fifty Shades girl. Because, like, when it came to the topic, I was like a dictionary. I knew everything. Red light, green light, go. You know, it, it, it didn't really matter. And, you know, um... As, as crazy as it sounds, I really felt like like the the captain of the football team. Like it gave me this enormous amount right for the was. right. Yeah. So right, after feeling so alone, you know, feeling so torn away from family and everything else, that was that one time somebody people were actually listening, people actually were interested in right. what you had to say. Granted, it was on the spectrum of you know right. the sex addiction that you were already. In the, uh, the, the, the crash or grips up at that point in time, but to feel accepted in the middle of that, you know, then <clears throat> people that you put your trust in, you're losing, you know, these are rude people that you want to be rude people, people that you can rely on to come in the network, but yet these are people that just leave. Right. You know? And then so you finally get a group of women, peers, that are entwined into this. Right, and they're listening. Yeah. But on the same level, they're judging. Yeah. You know, and so then it was like one of those things where, okay, because it hurt from the judgment that they were given, I just stopped telling them. It was like out of sight, out of mind. You know, I remember, um, Josh, that you said something in your testimony that really stuck with me. You know, it's easy to see a person that does meth or that does, you know, or that drinks, it's easy to see them relapse. It's easy to see what they go through. It's easy to see what 
if they're having an issue. But in our world, it was easier to sweep it under the rug, especially when you live in a small town and I live five minutes outside of town and there's no neighbors. I can do what I wanted to do. Now, I will say that, you know, I felt like I was doing no wrong because I never once brought my kids into it. Like, nobody ever knew why, other than the, the one guy that out of my, you know. Um, but nobody ever came to my house. Nobody ever, what I did, I did away from the house. And that's how I rationalized it. Like, you know, I mean, God, and, then, and then it even goes back to the quid pro quo. Guys do it all the time, and they don't get hated for it. So what's wrong with me doing it and enjoying it? You know, I made every excuse known to man to to make what I was doing okay to other people. But what they didn't see on the inside is, is even though I called myself enjoying it, I hated it just as much. It's like a two-sided coin. You have heads and you have tails. You know, there were great moments in it. But at the same time, every single time I did it, I hated myself more because I didn't know how to stop. Right. It was like I needed that feeling of wantedness. It's like I almost enjoyed the chase more than I enjoyed the actual act because of the because of the interaction with the person, because the lead up to it. Yeah. If that makes sense. I mean, if I was realistic, you know, and because the Lord knows this and, and I've, I've became peace with myself, if I sat down and was actually honest, I could have probably, it, it used to be an ongoing joke, but I probably could have had a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, and, it, and none of them would have ever known about it. It was just as simple as that. It, you know, it was like clockwork, you know. And you almost don't even think about it. When you get in it, it's, I mean, it's like shooting heroin. You don't even think about it. You just do it. It, it becomes a job. It's routine. It's happening. It's the norm, you know, to you. Um, so during all of this time, what was that for you? Still depending on porn, or oh, yeah, like I, I mean, I tried to integrate it when I could. I mean, I even got so crazy with it that I actually decided to sell pure romance and you know, and actually did sex parties. Like, I, you know, I took it to, I guess, a whole new level. I, you know, I guess my thing was, is if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna embrace it, and you know, um, but of course, there in my mind, you know, I'm. I'm still rationalizing it. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, guys do it all the time. They can get away with it. So why can I not be the same? Right. Why does why does it have to be an issue? And still at this time, I didn't really, you know, even know anything about sex addiction. It was just one of those things where 
if anything, I was thinking that I was addicted to the, the feeling, the emotion. But when you, when you get out of that storm and you're actually able to see when, when the clouds lift, what was actually going on, you know, it's a, it's a completely different outcome. So, so I, can, I can see this progression of things just, just going downhill. You know, and we, we call it different things, but what did that rock bottom look like in your story? Because I can see where it's on a it's on a crash course. It's coming. Yeah. Well, um, rock bottom started, um, you know, uh, probably. You know, shortly after my last assault, you know, um, I still, you know, I still went out and did things, but in my mind, I was, I was safer about things. Like I would meet the person in public and, you know, and things like that. And, you know, I called myself having safety guards up, you know, corporate. Um, but my depression had gotten like really, really out of hand. Um, and I've always suffered, you know, with depression. You know, the thing about depression is sometimes it peaks, sometimes it doesn't. You know, um, I suffered with it when I was, you know, in high school and took medicine, but I didn't always take medicine. You know, it was, you know, whatever. Um, but I remember that I had an old prescription of depression medication and a nine millimeter. And... One morning I got up and it was like I just couldn't breathe. I, I mean, I just, I could not breathe. And in that moment, I, you know, they say that you don't ask for help, but you really do. Because in that, in that moment, I called a friend and, I, you know, I, I told them, you know, look, I, I'm about to do this. I cannot do this anymore. I, you know, I had failed. I had failed as a mother. You know, I took on, and I, I didn't even bring this up, but I took on my ex-husband's meth addiction when we got separated. So it was, it was a, a ball rolling. Like I, I was still harboring all this guilt, everything, and I'm only one person. And so, you know, I had, I had the gun, and I was planning on using it. And then my daughter came in. It was about God. But I didn't listen. I was still stubborn. You know, I, you know, but I would say that that is kind of where the ball started rolling. Because then, you know, I had kind of reached out a few more times in my, in my addiction to different guys. Well, um, I had one that, here again, you know, not all of the guys in my life were not, you know, I guess, quote, quote, the word form in 2021 are friends with benefits. A lot of them, you know, I would like to call friends, but we know that they're not, you know, because when you get out of addiction, you can't be friends with, you know. Um, but in that, I, I would consider them friends, but really what they were were just repeats, repeats. And while well, I have one that I had already messed around with, well, um, I decided, he reached out, and I decided to go out with him. 
And in, in the midst of things, something in my mind told me not to, that it just wasn't the right time. Well, um, during that date, there again, um, you know, another friend of mine says it's a sexual assault because I said no to certain parts of things and I agreed to certain parts of things. You know, the line gets blurred. So, but in that moment was my breaking point. Because instead of acting out from this assault, I needed to find the root, the real root of what was wrong. Like, why am I putting myself into these situations and, and making myself suffer? Why? Just why? So in, in, that, in that, I, you know, like I said, I had a conversation with a friend and she, you know, for months, had every Saturday night, it was like clockwork. She would text me. She'd be like, hey, you want to come to church tomorrow? You want to come? So it wasn't like the Lord had not been trying. Okay, it was like, but in my, you know, the whole life, I, I was just stubborn, independent. I felt like I could fix myself on my own. Like, it was a God person that can fix me. Like, I don't, you know. And so on um, that night, um, instead of her messaging me, I sent her a message and I said, hey, are you going to church tomorrow? And she was like, yeah. She was like all excited. She was like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I'll be there at 9.30. Because before then, I just made every excuse in the book why not today. Like, you know, I mean, I pray on occasion, but why, why do I need to be in the building? You know, I mean, you know. And that was the way that I looked at things, you know. Um, but I got up, and on that morning, I walked into overflow. And, you know, at first, I didn't feel any different, and, you know, they always say that when the Lord talks to you, you feel convicted. You feel convicted. Well, I really felt like Brother Paul that day was, like, talking directly to me. Like, I was the only person in the room. <laughs> and if it wasn't even much worse, um, the worship team actually sung a song by Hillsong, Good Grace. Yeah, and um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't stand a chance that day <laughs> because the one verse that stood out to me in that whole song was "Fix your eyes on one truth that God is madly in love with you." And at the end of that sermon, I legitimately could not walk because I sat there and I bawled my eyes out. For the longest time. You know, people say that you got to go to the altar to surrender. But that's not always the truth. Because I wasn't making it to the altar. But I surrendered. And that is actually where I first met someone off the leadership team of Celebrate Recovery. They were the only person in church that morning that actually stopped and asked if I was okay. And asked if they could pray with me. Still bawling my eyes out like a little two-year-old. Like, I, you know, I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, you know, at that point, I still didn't understand. But at the same time, it was like, once it started coming out, it was just like you just couldn't write. It was just like you couldn't stop. And so she invited me to celebrate recovery. 
on Thursday night. And I was like, all right, I'll try it out. You know, I'm going to have to try it out. You know. And um, it was like, oh my gosh, where have these people been all my life? <laughs> like, you go in and you stay. Like, it's so funny because in my first small groups, I was like, I'm not going to talk. 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 And they get to your they get to your name and you're like it just comes out of your mouth. Like it's like you're telling all these secrets that you have held for so long, and then when you realize that lightning didn't strike and they did not shame you, and a week and, and the crazy thing was is even after the first time I ever spoke in small groups, I waited in town because we're in a small town. You know, they tell you that what stays in, what happens in small groups stays in small groups. Well, how many times have you heard that in your life? And then grandma gets on the phone with grandma, and then everybody, you know, so I was really. That was a great experience because every time I told somebody Right, and that's, you know, like, I was like, okay, so it was like the first time that I ever shared in small groups, it was like I waited that whole week, week and a half for like the shoe to drop, like did somebody tell my business, like I was just waiting on it, and it never happened, and then you go back in, and they're still hugging you, and they're still showing you what grace is really like, what hope is like, and you know, and that's a completely different high. I mean, you know, um, it was it was it was definitely surreal in that moment. You know, you're being accepted no matter how dark your past. Well, my thing was is I felt like it wasn't so much the being accepted part; it was the fact that I was being accepted one without strings. And two, well, that and and that I was accepted in a in a fact where it was a good acceptance. You know, in in my addiction, yes, I was wanted and I was needed, but I was not wanted and needed in the way that I truly wanted and needed. Because it was like no matter what I did, that hole was still there. That that and and it's like an it's just like in any addiction you're not gonna feel that hole until you get to the root of what is really going on and you know even my my other but God moment was um, right after I went to overflow for that first that first time and of course I've been to overflow um, I'm now an active member on um, my volunteer on the leadership team you know um for I recovered right there. Um, Shout out to Lifeline. Right, Lifeline. Um, <laughs> but um, shortly after that first initial morning, the church um, offered grief share classes. And, you know, something that I did not know 20 years ago, and I just learned, is, is that grief can snowball and addiction you know 
in, in a lot of people because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what the signs are. They don't know what is the norm and how the norm is act. And they, they're just pushed either quicker than they're supposed to be. Like, let's, let's just go back to normal. And that's, you know, right, right. Like, oh, you should be over it by now. Well, you know, no. You know, how do you get over a guilt and a shame when you can't have a conversation with that person you know, and right, like, you know, so um, Grief Share was also, you know, on top of the Celebrate Recovery in the church itself, Grief Share was a lifeline to me at that time because I learned a lot of the things that I did, the acting out and the things like that, even at 19, had a lot to do with pushing me into my addiction. I mean, there were other triggers here, you know, but it kind of just all kind of worked. It's just my life, you know, my story. And, you know, I know everybody's is different, but that's kind of how it, how it happened for me. Yeah. So, you know, you got into sober recovery, helping, you know, that's what recovery will like you and grief share. So, what are you doing now? Yeah. How long have you been sober now? Um, sober, sober. I, I, I am making better decisions, better decisions now for running 18 months. Okay, and so, so, in these 18 months, besides the suburb recovery, which y'all are not suburb recovery anymore, y'all are just we are my life right now. So aside from Lifeline, aside from that grief share, what are some things that you have replaced in your life to keep you sober? <laughs> uh, well, let's just say, um, you know, some might not might not ever agree with with this. You know, some went to recovery, you know, like rehab. Some went to um, but I, I, you know, I'm pretty stubborn and I, you know, as y'all heard in my story, I just quit cold turkey. I made a decision and that's what I, that's what I was going to do. And that's, you know, in a sense, that's what, that's what keep, because I have to get up every morning and make a decision. Am I going, because oh, let me tell you, the devil has not stopped just because I decided to make a decision. If anything, sometimes he tempts me, and it's like the apple on the tree. He tempts me in different ways than he used to. Um, but one of the biggest things that keeps me busy, other than church and, and volunteering with Lifeline, is um, and my kids, of course, is um, <laughs> I, um, I graduated in June with my bachelor's in psychology of addictions. Um, so, um, and, um, I'm actually in, um, my master's program for psychology and fiction. So hopefully I have less than a year left and I'm going for a doctor. So, um, I feel like knowledge is power and, you know, um, something that has also, you know, helped me in addiction is, it's just, you know, um, I didn't go through all the 12 steps before they swapped over to, you know, from Celebrate Recovery to Lifeline. 
And it seems to me like no matter where I go, even when I visited your your celebrate recovery, I always catch it at the oddest times, like you're on number eight or you're on number nine. So I've never actually called it in the order that it is supposed to go. But I will tell you the one thing that um that really stuck with me is um you know me and the Lord every night do a personal inventory check. You know, and I do that in prayer. Because, you know, even if I faltered or even if I did something that I feel like might have been a fine line as to a, a question or a concern, you know, I take it and I'm honest with him and I'm like, okay, obviously I think I might need to still work on this a little bit. So, you know, um, and, and ask him to, to guide me, to show me, to, you know, to help me better myself, because the better person that I am is the better parent that my kids are getting. And when I'm the only one that they rely on, that's that's the healthiness in me. I, I need to be healthy and and 100% for them instead of greater than That's where the hope is. Like that to go from. Six years old, and being told you're raising your sister Nicholas, and then in your mom, and sexual assaults, and sexual assaults, all the things that's happened, and to end up where you're at now, back to work on, finish up your master's, and get your like, man, that is that's 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 hope. For anybody out there who's still in that darkness and addiction, like that is the biggest way of walking. Man, I just, man, you are a lighthouse. You are a lighthouse of hope to those that are drowning in the hopelessness and in the darkness of addiction. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for, for taking that. Step forward and to join us here and to share all this. It, it's man, it's been an emotional ride. And, and if your story is a fiery example of hope, man, I, I don't know what it is. And you know, as we do at the end of every episode, we got a couple questions for you. Okay. We're going to end with a, with a couple of them. Uh, number one, what is the biggest thing? that you have taken away from your own story? What are some lessons learned? Well, I did learn at an early age that I wasn't going to be like my parents. And, you know, and, and not to be funny in, the, in that sense, I, you know, it, I even said that I wasn't having kids, but, but God decided that um, I needed, you know, I needed kids and, and I would not give them for the world because, you know, a lot of days they are my lifeline. They are my lifeline. They are my hope. And my life. Um, but I had to make a conscious decision that I was not going to be my parents. I was not, you know, because I didn't want, that was always my fear. I did not want my kids to have that unloved feeling. And I didn't want to be the cause of it. I, I just did not, you know. So I, I would probably say that that would be my, my biggest lesson in that. 
I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that can that can relate to that. That probably can explain. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so number two, what would you tell somebody going through the same exact thing that you came out of? You know, I thought I had this answer in my head, you know, before I got here. But, you know, the the biggest thing that I would say is, is don't give up. Don't stop pushing. You know, your time is coming. You just have to grab a hold of it. You know, um, your story's not over. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't realize that they're just in a chapter of their life. And, you know, there's a whole end of the book waiting for them if they just turn the page. So many people that have to keep track of the note on the turn the page and they see the end of the chapter there. So, yeah. yeah. So I got a couple of questions for myself. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Jerry. So, what impact do you think the old you have on the Ooh. You know, believe it or not, I think the old me holds me more accountable to the new me. Um, I, you know, I find myself, you know, like I said, on a daily basis, checking myself, like, because, well, and it's because, you know, they always say that you don't see the growth until you're standing outside the growth, you know. And I always, do not get me wrong, even on bad days, I look at myself like I feel like I failed. But realistically when I sit down and I hold myself accountable and look at the person that I used to be compared to the person that I am today, that is where the growth and the change come from. Because if you're not if if you're not changing, you're not growing. And if there's not movement in that change, then then you're not growing. And and that is where hope comes from. You have, you know, is, is to watch other people shine and to watch and hear other people's recovery and to that's that's what hope is about you know it, it, it really is <laughs> yeah that's so just hearing your, your story from you know like josh was saying earlier from being six years old and pretty much fine you know that whole psyche of being unwanted then to now getting the match. I mean, that that right there is an inspiration on its own. You know, that's one of those things that when you really start to uh, talk to people and try to inspire and encourage people, you know, um, people always think, well, I'm, I'm an addict, I can't get to this, or I'm, I've been in addiction, I can't get to that. You know, but the whole thing is, is your story right now is telling everybody, hey, look, it, it never stops where you think it stops. Unless you put your best foot forward, you know, that change that you want to happen won't change because you're not putting your best foot forward. Right. You know, you made a conscious decision to say, no more, I will not live like this anymore. You know, of course, with the help of God, the help of, you know, your recovery family, um, and with the help of, you know, um, CR and, uh, lifeline. Um, share. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, those are those are tools, man, that you know, not a lot of people realize that are, are really beneficial. 
uh, especially the grief share. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's so many people that are grieving things they don't even realize are grieving it until they actually start to open up and admit and talk about these things. You know, and then it's just, I'm just, I'm glad. I'm glad you came to talk to us, Dana. Uh, I'm, I'm inspired by your story. Uh, I might not have dealt with the same things in the same fashion, uh, but addiction is addiction. Okay. You know, um, and everybody thinks it just it starts with drugs, addiction, drugs, da da da. No, addiction can mean anything. You know, what did um, say? Anything that you can't uh, fast from, you're slave to. Yeah. Well, and my thing was is, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, so I knew to stay away from alcohol because right. if I enjoyed alcohol way too much, then it would be an issue. So, but when you're young, and especially in that time. You know, time now in 2021 is completely different. Addiction is a lot more out there. Like they, you know, they talk about it. Right. But but back then they didn't explain to you that, well, you you might not have alcoholism, but there's a whole book of other addictions that you you, because you have that personality. Right. So, if you had that one person that you wanted to reach, you know, so basically we call this the uh, your 15 minutes of fame, open mic, open your open mic, that's it. The, uh, the open mic. Right but yes, uh, to, to reach that one person, you know, just like this podcast, we shoot to reach one person, you know. Um, there's so many times that we try to we try to grasp too much and get everybody, but it's really about the one. You know, Jesus even comes back and tells you, you know, I've left the 99 for the one. Huh? What would be your words to that one person looking for that beat of hope uh, that's trying to live unashamed as well? I think that I would just say that we're meant to be unperfect. You know, um, that's what Jesus died for on the cross because we were imperfect and we were going to sin and we were going to mess up. But, you know, when I think about it, it's going to sound crazy, but I am thankful to have a father that loves like he loved Jacob. He loved me in my struggles. He never forsakes me. I might have not seen him, but it's like when you go into your grandma's house when I was young, you know, you had that footprint sign yeah. in every bathroom. Well, at least in the, in the southern states, okay? You go in the bathroom, you had, you know, the footprints and, you know, and, and the whole scripture of footprints. And, you know, but you really don't grasp that until you feel that yeah. or till you see that until you go through that. And I guess my biggest thing to show hope and to tell that one person is, is you might feel like you're at the deepest, darkest part of your life and you might feel like you're alone, but in this world, you are never alone. You might not physically see them, but there's someone standing there rooting for you to just stand up and say you've had enough 
This is it. I do not want to live like this. I want a different life. That's it. That's, you know, even if it's not the Lord, there, there is, I mean, Mother Mary for, you know, I mean, there is just know that there is a whole life out there past your addiction that is just waiting on you. It's a freedom like no other, like, like Chainbreaker, the song, you know, I'm, I'm a song fanatic, you know, um, that is the absolute truth. You know, I struggle still every day about feeling like I'm not enough. But at the end of the day, all that matters is, is I know that I'm enough for the one person that I need to be enough for. And that's the Lord. Because he loves me regardless of whether or not I feel like I'm not enough or not. So just know that there is, there's hope. There is light. And it is just waiting for you to grab a hold of it. Today, y'all, that winds up all the time that we have today. I want to take this time to once again thank our guests, Dana, for stopping by and sharing and being here with me in the group. And I sincerely hope that today's episode has shined some ray of hope for you and has been a blessing for you. I hope it has had some type of encouragement for you. Uh, don't forget that you can always join the recovery conversation with us on Twitter. You can find us at Unashamed Recovery. That's Unashamed Recovery on Twitter. You can also use the hashtag Recovery Posse to connect with thousands and thousands of other people in the recovery community worldwide. And do you want to be a guest on the show like our guest today, Dana was? Or do you want to be able to share your amazing story with our listeners from all around the world? Or maybe, maybe you just want to tell us how well that we're doing, or maybe how well we're not doing. Or maybe you have a question. <laughs> you can always send us an email at unashamedpodcast.yahoo.com. That's unashamedpodcast.yahoo.com. And Dana, if somebody wants to reach out to you and maybe get you to come share at their recovery group, or maybe they want you to come be on their recovery podcast, or Maybe there's somebody out there who's going to do the same thing that they want to reach out and ask for some help. What is the best way for somebody to get contact with you? Well, I'm going to say, I used to say Facebook, but I'm uh, for Lent. I'm giving up social media. So, <laughs> 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 um, but I would say my email address, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, it's dana.hall51 at yahoo.com. And I'll make sure that Josh and Drew have that if anybody reaches out. We'll be putting that in the show notes of the podcast and in the show notes of the YouTube video. I'll be able to click that and there'll be a link. And with that, y'all, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. And I hope that y'all all continue to stay sober. And until next time, we love y'all. And remember to be unashamed. Love you guys. Hey, recovery fam. It's your two favorite hosts again. What's up, guys? It's Josh and Drew. That's, that's Drew. I'm Josh. Hey, sure, I'm Drew. Guys, we want to come to you today and talk to about a great resource that is available to everybody. It started here in uh, East Mississippi, but it is 
worldwide, and that is Rise Up Christian Counseling. That's Rise Up Christian Counseling. They are a tremendous partner with us here on the podcast. So the thing about Rise Up Christian Counseling is it's virtual counseling uh, that's available for trauma, mental health, addiction, couples counseling, anything that you're dealing with. Uh, they got a virtual setup, man. It's it's pretty amazing. Drew, how much does Rise Up Christian Counseling cost? Hold on, let me think on that. Oh, it's free, guys. That it is free. That is it's capital free. F R E E exclamation point. Free. free. Nada. Zip to you. It is a free resource that is available. So what is your excuse? If you're struggling, you don't have an excuse. Go to these guys. Drew, what is that website? Do they have a website? Uh, I think it's riseupchristiancounseling.com. Riseupchristiancounseling.com. That's it. Man. So one more time, riseupchristiancounseling.com. And not only uh, is it free and it's virtual counseling, but they do handle everything from a biblical standpoint, which is amazing. It's an amazing uh, concept. Uh, and it's an amazing tool that's available out there for everybody. So there aren't any excuses. Um, and you do not have to be a Christian to take advantage of this. Just because they're coming from a biblical standpoint, that's just an added bonus. But you do not have to be a Christian to take advantage of Rise Up Christian Counseling. What was the age of that? How old do you have to be? That's 18 years and up. 18 years and up can take advantage of Rise Up Christian Counseling. And guys, I hope you do take advantage of this. Me and the owner, we have talked about this. We have spent a lot of time chatting about it, and I'm excited. He's excited. Go check them out today. Rise Up Christian Counseling. And that's riseupchristiancounseling.com. That's right. Go look them up, guys. All right. We love you. Love you. Peace. And with that, y'all, that's all the time we have for today. We hope that today's episode has shined some ray of hope and encouragement for you. We hope that it inspired you to not give up and that you too can have a life outside of addiction and can have lasting sobriety. Recovery fam, don't forget that you can always join us for more recovery conversations on Twitter. Find us at Unashamed Recovery and also use the hashtag Recovery Posse to connect with thousands and thousands of others in the Twitter recovery community worldwide. Do you want to be on the show to share your amazing story with listeners from around the world like our guest today did? Or maybe simply you want to tell us how we're doing. Or do you have any suggestions or questions uh, for me for the show? Send the show an email at unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. That's unashamedpodcast at yahoo.com. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast, and I hope all hope you all continue to stay sober. And until next time, we love you, and y'all remember to be unashamed. unashamed.